the one thing I didn't think that we'd have trouble getting people to do it. I thought we'd have people trouble getting people to be honest with the cameras rolling. And the first day we ran that first group, I was like, what the fuck? This is crazy. These people are talking about stuff that, like, they don't want to talk about with me one-on-one in a room. And, let, and there's three cameras in here. That was a new phenomenon, too. That, that shocked me. And once we did that first group, I know, oh, my God. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Today's episode is is a little self-serving because we're covering one of my shows. So I get to be both the moderator and the executive here. We're going to talk about Celebrity Rehab. It's a show that I'm incredibly proud of, a show that saved numerous lives and really walk that fine line between help and entertainment that is uh, in- incredibly challenging to do. I'm joined for this conversation by a very dear friend, the creator of the show, John Irwin. I had no clue who John was when we first started working together about a decade ago, but now he's one of my closest friends. And that really speaks to the power of what these partnerships are like and what I'm excited to discuss today. Sitting in the other chair is another incredible person, Mr. Bob Forrest. Bob was Dr. Drew's right-hand man on Celebrity Rehab. You may know Bob as the man with the glasses and the hat. Bob really walks the walk. He lives a life of service to others, and he's been incredibly helpful to me in a couple of uh, pretty scary instances with friends and family who really needed help, and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. So with that, let's talk about Celebrity Rehab. John, what was the light bulb for this show? I think, look, it was it was one of those things where it was sort of in the zeitgeist. You know, it was we were at a time when you couldn't w- walk into a supermarket without uh, the cover of every magazine. And, it, you know, back then it was Britney Spears who was like, you know, losing her mind. And so we were seeing celebrities who were starting to, you know, implode. very young celebrities, yeah. which was, you know, it was brutal. And that it was funny. You and Damien were seeing the same things I was. Right. And we didn't know each other. And I came into Drew's office one day, and I was pissed because Jay Leno was making fun of them. Right? Every punchline, and you come from comedy, every punchline, it was Lindsay Lohan was such an easy punchline. Right. And and I was seeing it from the point of view of the addicts, like, these are little kids. And then me and my sober musician friends were talking, like, if you had 24-hour news cycles and internet and the bombardment of us when we were that messed up, we would kill ourselves. And how these little girls were just being brutalized by the modern new media, right? And so I went into Drew after seeing Jay Leno had two different jokes about the little girls that are having mental health issues and addiction issues. And I said, we need to do a TV show about addiction. And you guys were already talking to him. Yeah, I remember we got connected uh, to Drew through John Farreter, right? Went, met with Drew. Drew was like, he was all, he was in love with the idea. 
And, uh, and then I remember we went out and we pitched it around to all the different networks and everybody had the same question, which was like, you're never going to be able to cast this thing, like impossible. Uh, but then we walked into Mike Darnell's office and he was like, I love it. We're doing it. Um, so we kind of went down that road, but at the time... Broadcast, got it. So this was going to be for Fox. Right, so so it was... Mike was like this... Because Mike also, I think, had the wherewithal to know that there was a way, you know, there's a way to make anything happen and this show is imminently bookable. So while we're kind of waiting to hear from Fox, we go and we pitch it to VH1. And I think you were in the room with Jeff, maybe you No, were. no, I was not in the room. I came in a little bit later. So it was yeah. Jeff and uh, Jeff Old. Probably Tomla. Yep. Maybe Jill, Alex. And um, and I remember he just had super poker face, and I walked out of there going, okay, there's no way they're going to buy it. And then, lo and behold, you know, uh, Fox said no, because Darnell's boss was like, this is the, lo-, you know, this is reality hitting absolute rock bottom. VH1 was like, let's give this thing a shot. And then we went out and we basically shot this tape, which is we got Jeff Conway... We got Leif Garrett, Mary Carey, uh, and then we shot with some regular people. Yeah, that's when just, I came in at PRC. Yeah, yeah. We, we went to the thing at PRC, and that was more just to kind of fill in some of the emotional, because, you know, we got that one girl who had that crazy know, story. That she was like 18, story. 19 years old, and she was there because she was drunk driving, and she just killed a mother and, like, two or three kids. So, I mean, like, that's a – so we shot this – 15-minute presentation tape, and, uh, you know, we were, like, in Jeff Conway's house, and he was taking us through his cabinets and showing all the drugs and cutting up cocaine. On I mean, it was, like, it was one of the most amazing tapes because you saw something that nobody had ever seen before, which is literally, like, you're watching... I'd seen it. <laughs> well, you'd seen it, but on camera, on camera. It's like you're watching celebrities either doing drugs... I know. ...or talking about doing drugs, or in the throes of being wasted... Falling and down. Falling yeah. down, and da 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 And, um, you know, and I think we turned that into you guys, and everybody was like, oh, my God, this is like... You know, yeah, well... From another planet. I'll, I'll fill in on that side, because that is where I got involved. And I remember... Um, sorry, backing up for a second... If I remember correctly, the reason that that uh, you guys treated civilians was because Drew wasn't allowed to treat the celebrities without treating the celebrities, right? So until he was going to actually take them in and, you know, you're going to take them in and give them the full Monty, yeah. it was more of a sales proposal. You know, let's highlight what their issues are and then let's show what treatment looks like. And then you can smush that together. And that's, right. that's the show. And that... You know, I knew the one thing I didn't think that we'd have trouble getting people to do it. I thought we'd have people trouble getting people to be honest with the cameras rolling. And the first day we ran that first group, I was like, what the fuck? This is crazy. These people are talking about stuff that no one has ever talked about. Right. Like they don't want to talk about with me one on one in a room. And there's three cameras in here. That was a new phenomenon, too, that. That shocked me. And once we did that first group, I know, oh my God, this yeah, is it's on. This is gonna be Do you think that's do you think that's just because of narcissism? I mean what that's what Drew says. I just think they were longing to, to tell their story and have people understand them. I think right? it's two things. I think that there's something about and this is why reality television works, is because I think after a very short period of time, people forget the cameras are there. 
yeah. and they literally just start to go. And I also think that like the you know I'll never forget when Jeff Conway pulled up because I, that was the first person we admitted right and sort of the the process was we we'd film them pulling up they'd get out of the car they'd you know meet with Shelly she'd take him in and yeah. and Jeff was freaking wasted. You know, I remember he handed like a bottle of something to yeah, champagne to somebody's they were getting out, <laughs> and like, and I just remember like, and that was the very first thing we shot, and I remember just like out of the gate going, okay, there's no way the show's not going to be insane. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because you're watching this just sort of train wreck unfolding right in front of you, but then 24 hours later, we're sitting in a group session, and you're watching these people like open up and pour out their hearts. And it's like, oh my god, we have this perfect cocktail of absolute train wreck combined with like sort of these redemptive, like, oh my god, I can completely relate to each one of these people and the problems they have. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the one thing I certainly learned through through this process was that like, you know, these people all suffer from the same shit that we do, right? Yeah. They just chose to act it out in a different way than maybe me or somebody else. But it's like And once they start acting out that way, it takes on a life of its own. And Jeff is the best example. Like Jeff is a showman, right? right? And everywhere he went, he was just being he was on. Same as Tom Sizemore. There's certain people that are just on all the time. And, you, you, and can't, you can't get to the Seth real and, them almost. Yeah. It's almost like they become this drug taking, you know, attention getting making machine right and i know a lot of regular addicts like that that are not just you know celebrity it's not celebrity that component it's just drug addicts become these these just anomalies in our society that don't give a fuck about anything you know and jeff is the personification of that oh yeah there's no doubt so bob was obviously optimistic that you know you could book it but john were you optimistic i mean you've got one network biting you know, everyone's one and a half. Well, he, here's the crazy thing. So I remember Damien and I like having this conversation about the fact that this sh- we got to try to book this show. And I remember when we then, because I mean, VH1 gave us like 15000 I don't know, fifteen twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to shoot this thing. And and like at the time, like this was literally just coming out of my pocket. Like I had no money, you know, I mean, I was like, okay, we got to figure out how to make this thing work. And um, we just started cold calling these people and it was like Jeff Conway was willing to do it for 500 bucks. You know what I mean? It was, it was the craziest thing that this is for the presentation tape, tape, right? Right. That like these people were willing to do this for virtually no money. And I do think that there is some level of them. Like it was like a cry for help in a weird way. But it's also like, look at how, you know what I mean? There, it was time they, and place, too. There was a lot of, it was a new evolving genre, reality television. It really was, like surreal life. And then you put Dr. Drew, that gives them the cover to get involved in, I thought. Because if it was just a production company, but if it didn't have Dr. Oh, Drew no that you were no saying, doubt. No doubt. they, they gave, trust they gave Drew. It the, they gave the validity. And, and, you know, to be honest with you, everyone loved The Surreal Life. I loved it. I watched it season after season. But, but, but the part that I'm trying to get my head around is, like, why would Jeff Conway, for 500 bucks let us come into his house and shoot him? You in know, hopes of getting sober, because he had been trying for years. And, and, and Drew's theory, which I think he was right about, 
and we also started to find that was that the reason what was great about the show is that the cameras made everybody suddenly accountable for their actions because like if you went and did something wrong we got it on tape we can sit you down and we can show you to you on like so suddenly it forced everybody to basically be on their best behavior and as a result of that the treatment just works better because you're suddenly start to get engaged and focused and you get into those group sessions and you and and I think even with the group sessions like you don't you know because these people are so narcissistic you don't want Bob to tell a better story than the story that I've got so suddenly people start to tell their crazy stories and in doing so there's like sort of this healing cathartic thing that starts to happen and then it starts the process starts to work and they get more engaged and like you know within a week into the program or the process these people are now there not because of the television show not because of the money they're there because they're now totally invested in getting better well think of it in two ways so a lot of people especially season three season four they're coming to to heal their career on a certain level and there's another thing of heal their addiction so you have two driving factors right i think that really had a profound effect on on their success rates you know and then i dealt with them for months afterwards and they really wanted to get better, and they're simultaneously their career is getting better. They're getting more opportunities. What's wrong with that? You know, we got criticized for that. I was like, who fucking cares why people get well? What, and now we have to have criteria of what motivates people to get well? And I also think that for a lot of these people, for the first time, they were in a safe place, and that was an amazing thing for them. Do you know what I mean? To be in that, because what happens in treatment is you're in this confined space, you have rules you have this family that, that a lot of these people have never had before in their i mean it it becomes like sort of the best time of their life since they started doing drugs in a strange way you know yeah i mean well bob you mentioned all the help that you provided to the you know to the celebrities to the addicts um afterwards what do you think the responsibility is of the producers to the talent post show and, you know, how did it sort of mirror on this? How do you, do you know, how do you balance being a television producer, you know, bringing in real people, that whole pot of, of responsibility? Quickly, I mean, with the help of you and Drew and Shelly, like we quickly realized as we were, you know, a week and a half into this that we need to set up some kind of aftercare for these people yeah. or they'd fall on their, on their face. So we set up Sober Living. The ones that were willing to go when it wasn't on camera you know, that said, they're motivated, right? And most of them that went to the outpatient, went to sober living or stayed connected to us as a team succeeded. And the ones that just said, no, 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 I don't want to go. And, you know, I got something to do, you know, had a harder time. And so it was this merging of television and, 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 well, in the recovery industry, like how does it work? And it really was a screening process. Whoever's, whoever really wants to get better is going to go hang out with Shelly and Bob and do outpatient with Drew for months afterwards. And who doesn't is probably not going to sign up for that. And I was surprised at the people that did. Jason Davis did. Came for months. I was like his second father. And, and the, craziest like... thing about, <laughs> the craziest thing about Jason Davis is for years he was in and out of trying to get treatment and could not find anything that worked. I mean, I remember when he came to us, he had like an abscess on I mean, the guy was physically had things happening to him that needed like serious medical treatment that 
I mean, here's a kid who comes from millions and millions and millions of dollars, but because he's so deep in his addiction, he's not, doesn't have the wherewithal to treat like shit that's like obvious, completely killing him. Yeah. What got your recovery to finally stick, Bob? And did you go 23 times with an open mind or were you just going through the motions? I mostly went from what reasons most addicts go is because of trouble, whether you're running out of money or you're going to get fired from your job or the partner's going to leave you. But just motivated in the door of the rehab doesn't mean motivated to stick with it and follow through on it. It has It's a cumulative effect, meaning... All of it started to add up. I remember at a certain point, the things they told me in the first rehab, in like the 20th rehab, I was going, it's it's true what they've been saying. Right. <laughs> things are getting worse. Well, that's the thing, they, Bob. Is I think you'd agree. Like, most people have to hit absolute rock yeah. bottom. I mean, and it's very rare, right, for somebody to go to their first treatment program and find recovery. It's never. Right. It's right. never. And that's what the, you know, the recovery industry doesn't want you to know. Right. Right? That it's, it's this educational variety. You just get educated by life, by your poor decisions, that what the people are telling you is true. Drugs just aren't a solution for for your life problems, right? And that's what you're trying to get addicts to believe. But it was it was it shocked me how how real it was. Right? Agree. And yeah. and, and, so, and 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 to what you're saying, I think that like what we you know, because we sort of we went into it with sort of these um, you know, we would plan out the, we, we, you know, we sat, to, so before we started shooting, we sat down with Drew and Bob and we talked through like all the different type of modalities that they implement. Cause we obviously wanted to make sure that we were implementing them like equine therapy and, you know, going Having and doing, fun, doing drawings and, 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 you know, I think there was concern on our part, you know, going into this thing, God, I hope this, cause you know, a lot of it is. These people sit around for eight hours a day and smoke cigarettes and like, is the show going to end up being boring, you know? And ultimately what we found is that, you know, the, the, the stuff that just happened on its own in there was crazier than anything that anyone could have ever made up. Made up you know what I mean? And, and, and fortunately for us, you know, we were going into this in a situation where we couldn't like contrive stuff for this show because it would have... It would have um, it would have sacrificed these people's treatment, so we had to go into it knowing that we couldn't mess with it. And because we weren't trying to mess with it, amazingly crazy stuff happened. So it was like it kind of worked out, if you know what I'm saying. So that was an interesting. Well, and the other thing was Drew. It was interesting because he would argue with you guys that they wouldn't do that. And I would be like, yeah, they do. They do go to the grocery store. They do go on outings and go fishing, right? Right. Because we were doing a residential treatment model. See, the one thing that was hard for us is we worked in a hospital. So a lot of the stuff that Drew's saying is hospital-based treatment. But we And that is where they're locked down. Yeah, they are locked down. But what we were doing was residential treatment. That's what modern treatment is nowadays, right? You live in a house and they do go places and they do go surfing and they do all these kind of evocative therapies or whether it's just to, you know, entice addicts to go to these rehabs. They do exist. And Drew was like, no, they don't. I was like, I'm telling you, at Promises Malibu, they go surfing. They have surf therapy. And Drew's, you know, <laughs> but but but, but here's the thing, like I mean, there, and and there's a good reason for doing that stuff, which is that it's how you 
slowly start introducing these people back in the real world because inevitably most of the time that we would go do a surfing trip or a fishing trip or go to the market you would have you know they they would then freak out freak freak out out. because suddenly they're outside of the confines of their safe of their safety net and the reason those things are important to do is because if you just keep them in there for a month the second you let them out they're going to fall apart the idea is that you let them go do these things they freak out you then come back to you know drew and bob and the group and you talk through the experience so that way hopefully when it does come time to really let them out they've got two it's because look it's all about building your tool bag right so yeah when you get out there and, they, and i and i also think nowadays i'm still doing it every day so millennials are different than the generations mm-hmm. we've been treating you have to show them that life is worth living without drugs and that's what these therapies right. do right. Like you have fun. You got. I have kids. I mean, I, I'm as crazy as they come. I take kids to Coachella, right? Okay. Like they have like 43 days sobriety. There's AA meetings there for one thing. But I, you know, they're always told you can't do this, you can't do that. By a lot of these traditional treatment centers, you know, if you if you tell a kid their their fun is over and they got to go to AA and read out of a book and all this stuff that's traditional, they're not going to sign different. up for it. Right. And so nowadays, what's weird, what I'm trying to say is modern treatment is more like celebrity rehab than the 10 years ago when we started this. It's evolved into, you know, a combination of, of clinical and a comprehensive treatment plan, but also a life coping, uh, hope kind of inspiring p- component of it. And that's what Shelly and I do now. Shelly has, they have cooking classes at Shelly's Rehab. Like, I walked in there one day, and they were having cooking class. And I was like, you know, because part of me is old school from the old days. Like, there ain't no cooking. There was no cooking classes at my rehab. But nowadays, kids don't even know how to cook. They really don't. Their parents have done for them their whole lives. So it's really, you know, rehab is really taking on more of a just a complete life rehab yes, sort of, Yes, it's life rehab. It's like home ac meets. But that's part of what Sober House was, too. Because I remember, like, yeah. when some of these celebrities were Sober House, like, they didn't know how to make their beds. They didn't know how to like do di- like a lot of these people have zero life skills for whatever reason. I mean, whether it's because you know they've had a you know a, a um, entitled life or because well maybe what's happened now. Think about it. So Leif Garrett being an example, like I was shocked at how much he didn't know about just everyday stuff, right? And I I really like him and I click with him and I would just walk him through stuff and you could see the confusion on his face like this is not that hard you know what I mean like why have I been avoiding this so long nowadays I believe the millennial generation were raised like celebrities you know what I'm saying on a certain level they were told they were great every second they're everything they think is just beautiful and every picture they draw is the greatest that's basically what only teen idols got. Right. 30 years ago. Right. Now right. everybody gets that lifestyle. Right. And it's very disillusioning for the Leif Garrett's and, and, and celebrities of the world when their career to kind of takes a turn, right. right? It's very disillusioning for millennials when real life starts to happen to them when they're 21, 22, 23. They're like, hey, nobody gives a fuck. And I'm like, I know. I don't know why nobody's ever told you that before. <laughs> <laughs> They literally that's a, that's have never really been good, told that's that. That's a really before. good point. Really and I think point. that's why modern treatment has gotten more like what we were trying to do with these celebrities. So fascinating, I mean, isn't it's it? It's beyond fascinating. Especially, you know, as you talk about 
Celebrity Rehab really brought humanity to the treatment process, really publicized what it looked like. I mean, now there's treatment centers everywhere. I mean, it's the stigma has changed in many ways. Oh, there's and no doubt. The How about the president of the United States saying we're, these people are sick and they need treatment? Yeah. The president of the United States saying that. That wasn't being said 10 years ago. I mean, ago. when we started the show, I remember that it was like taboo. If you, need, if you had a drug problem and you, you, need, weak. To, and you need to get, to go get therapy, like there was something wrong with you. Like you were going down the hole. And I do think that that was something the show did. We contributed to It sort to of like pulled back the veil on, because people got to see that what it looked like like god it actually is you know it's normal and i think more than anything though it was people realizing again we were saying earlier where it's like these people are no different than you and me you know they have the same problems it's like they just chose to behave differently so it's like you know it's not like there's something wrong with them i mean they just need they just need help so i think it really kind of opened everyone's eyes up to sort of like there the isn't a that... place i go where people don't talk to me about celebrity rehab in brazil everywhere in an airport at a supermarket still it's been off the air for five years right yeah. or f- more than that longer longer than that it had a profound effect on the addiction community how people view addicts it did it just did and and I think it's very telling of what happens, what we've been saying all along. If you don't catch on to a different way of being, you're going to die. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was shocking to me. Like, you know, we've been telling them that. They know that. They verbalized that back to me. Yet their addiction is so profound, they ended up, you know, dying from addiction, right? America really hadn't seen it when it was happening to us initially. Now they see it and their, their grandkids are, are dying. You know, it's the leading cause of death. Addiction is the leading cause of death for Americans 50 and under. That was not the case 10 years ago. It was like seventh or eighth. So, you know, this, this thing has happened and we started something that humanized it and put it into a context that people could understand it. You know, I hate to say it, like, one of the reasons why when Drew said, well, I've been talking to these people about doing this TV show, and I said, well, we need to do it then. And he goes, I'm surprised that you, you would want to put it on television. I go, I said, America's so stupid at this point, unless you put it on television, they don't understand it. They're not going to read about it. I know I hate to say that. Right. But at this point... <laughs> Look what else we discovered on television <laughs> 10 years ago, right? <laughs> yeah. The idea that... that and now it's just really interesting to me, the evolution of reality television, that, that, that now it's made celebrities out of people who don't do anything. I, I find that fascinating. You're famous for being famous. So let's step it back for a second here. You know, you've mentioned just a second ago, Drew came to you, you know, should we do this? Should we not do this? You know, you had the idea. And now, actually, I'm going to go back a little bit further, but, you know, was your goal always to pull the blanket back? I mean, obviously, it was to help people. I mean, where do you, you know, where, where does this land? You need to make something that's entertaining and it can't be completely altruistic. How, I think it was you... a, com- I mean, as we, as Damien and I started to kind of dive into it, it was a combination of all of it, right? It was like, here's this epidemic that is starting to sort of implode. You know, I just remember like when Britney Spears went in and shaved her, shaved her head, it was like, Jesus, like this thing's just getting so crazy. And you had Lindsay Lohan and some of these others. And 
And yet they were looked at as pariahs. You know what I mean? Like th- yeah. that they were going to end up going down the hole. So my own mother, who had lived through my addiction, said, "What is wrong with that Britney Spears? She's got everything. She's beautiful. She has money. What is wrong with her?" I was like, "The same thing that was wrong with me for twenty years. What are you talking about? Just the lack of. I wanted to confront that. The lack of empathy yeah. towards addicts." And I, you know what I mean? But can you imagine? My mom used to pray that I not die every night. Yeah. And so she lived through it. Yet this little girl who was very wealthy and very successful, she was angry about her. Yeah. No, right? I, th- I, think it, I think it started to just make sense on every level. And I remember part of our pitch to everybody, to each of the networks, was that, you know, the hope was, as an outlier, that this thing would be on the air and you'd be either sitting there, you know, with either in the throes of addiction yourself or with a loved one who's in the throes. And this show would motivate you to get out there and get help. Because I think there's like tons of people out there or certainly were in the day who didn't even realize that drinking that that you might or, or drug or casual drug use like that there could be a problem there. You know, there, there was obviously like someone who's addicted to heroin or strung in on cocaine. But I think there was a, a large base of Americans who, who maybe drank every night and got wasted who didn't think they had a problem. Well, I've talked to thousands of people and they were inspired to get sober, to seek help themselves for one thing. But really what probably most of all was Jeff Conaway was addicted to prescription drugs, Pills. which is the biggest issue of 2018. And we were the first person to say, hey, you, just because it comes from a doctor, right. just because you have good reason to take it, does not mean it won't kill you. And we were the first people to show that. Now that's the talk of, of opioid conferences everywhere right they're suing doc doc doctor went to jail last friday in arizona that that was pushing fentanyl right so we were the first ones and those i've talked to so many prescription drug addicts who saw jeff conway on tv and said i'm kind of like that right they weren't as crazy or you know and and, and almost everybody who came in (laughs) had a purse or bag full of prescription prescription medicine Right. You know, and it was like, well, there's their thing. But they had an explanation. Well, my doctor gave it to me, and, yeah. you know, I, I take it one, you know, so it's like. Is that ultimately why it's the greatest killer now of under 50 because of the yeah, sh- prescription, prescription opioids, drugs? Yeah. yeah, I mean, so how do we turn it around? I mean, you know, if you were drawn to the show initially because celebrities were showing up on the cover of Us Weekly, the celebrity drug thing isn't reported maybe in the same way anymore. And, and, or it's not, you know, it's not as surprising, but the civilian problem, you know, is, is the epidemic in small town America and and large town America. It's, does it, does it show any signs of abating? How do we turn this around? You know, can television be helpful for that? The the TV show and the notoriety or the raise of the rise in visibility of me and, and, and doubling Drew's visibility has made us people that the government and, and the legal system have turned to to ask for a solution. I'm right now trying to come up with a solution for Lakewood, Ohio, which is ground zero for the opioid crisis. They have the highest per capita death rate in America, a suburb of Cleveland, right? And, you know, and I've been doing this for like four or five months trying to come up with a solution because all these people have Medicaid or poor or no insurance. So how do you help 12 million people, right, 
who are addicted to heroin or prescription opiates who have no money. And do you feel like most of the treatment centers now are doing the right thing? I mean, they're only serving 30% of the population, and that's not where a huge part of this epidemic is, right? But but, So you do feel like the treatment centers, as they are right now, are... You know, for the people that get in there, they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. There's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of great treatment centers across America. My problem is they only are serving a certain percentage right. of the population. That honestly, you don't see the opioid crisis in more well-to-do neighborhoods. I, I I saw a map at the San Francisco thing. Literally, Los Angeles and Southern California and San Francisco and New York and and parts of upstate New York are the only parts of the United States that don't have an opioid problem. Right. It's just, it, it goes, it's tan out there, and it just goes to, to black. And when you get over Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Tennessee, that's where the problem is. So that's where I'm going. I'm going there. I guess the question is, follow the money, right? Who's going to pay for all these centers? Can, well, the, can you get the drug companies to pay to, for them? Yeah, they're, they're Purdue's who I'm working with. I mean, it's a healthcare <laughs> issue, basically, yeah. is what it comes down to. But, but, you know, in the same old, same old, the, the arguments of, uh, you know, absence-based thriving doesn't work as well as just giving them medicine. That's the new conversation, which is, you guys noticed it. Suboxone, remember Amber Smith? How bad was her detox? It was the worst of all time on Celebrity Rehab. Yeah. That was Suboxone, the drug they now want to put 12 million of people on. <laughs> Think about that. Remember she threw up in the bucket? Oh, she yeah. was sick for like two weeks. Yeah, the heroin addicts, in five days they're fine, right? But, but Suboxone, the drug they want to put the heroin addicts on, uh, so I, Drew and I have been talking. It's just kicking the can down. So you're going to seemingly solve the problem right now, and it's only going to come back five years from now. Right. Right. John, did you realize or have any notion that you were tapping into something like this? Or did you just think, oh, this is the topic of the moment. Let's let's tackle I it. I think as we started to, I mean, I think certainly like at the onset, not so much. But as we started to dig into it, you know, and sit down with Drew and Bob and like, you know, by the time we started shooting the show and certainly um, as, you know, because we did these pre-shoots with these, with with the people that were coming in. I mean, I think, I think as we just started to get into it, it became very quickly like we realized this is a, this is out of control. Like we've tapped, like I remember with, with Shift, with Seth Binzer, you know, one of the guys was out chasing him through the, you know, he had, he had, agreed to come on and then we were doing a pre-shoot with him and he hung out down in that park that was like the drug MacArthur park, park MacArthur park and you know and and when i heard and i forget exactly what the details were but like we had a, a, a producer and a crew down there shooting him and i think he ran off and bought drugs and it was just it, it was like borderline dangerous it was like holy shit like, he was out of control i mean he would just i remember one on sober house on sober what was it called sober yeah on when sober he was on house the roof? no he disappeared for two days and they found him asleep on a bus and he ended up in a hospital and he was oh, right. he was sending videos of himself yeah it was yeah, like a, was, i mean it's like a whodunit episode trying to find him yeah it was it was right it was it was just was, i mean were you ever so scared making this show that you thought this is not a good here's idea the thing. anymore there, there was one time when i remember oh my god we've 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 totally fucked up here and that's when we were doing the first night of sober house 
and um, Stephen Stephen Adler, Adler <clears throat> was in the house, and he suddenly started acting really weird, and it was clear that he was on heroin, and he was doing the Coke. craziest shit you've ever seen, and we basically had to call the cops. I mean, we were like busting our own person, and we were doing it because, you know, we were worried about the safety of everybody else in the house, and, you know, Drew was like, this is what we got to do, and I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I remember when they, sh- and, and I think that we all thought that the cops would give him a slap on the wrist and calm everything down, but they ended up arresting him and taking him to jail, and we then had to bail him out the next day. And I mean, look, in the end, it worked out for the best because I think it was a huge wake-up call for him and, and a huge wake-up call for everybody else in the house because it's like, hey, if you screw around, it's 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 going to implode. But I mean, so yeah, there were definitely, I think, you know, many times when I remember one time we were out chasing um, Tom Sizemore. You know, trying even to, just what about trying to get him on the show? I thought he saying. was going to shoot that. us. Trying to get you know him. what I mean? You, you weren't there. It was so, me, John, Damien, and Drew yeah. went over to his house. I thought he he said I'm going to. He was being so weird. He went back in the house, and I was like, I was looking at the balcony we were on because I'm the one that's going to survive of the four people on that balcony. <laughs> I was going to jump. So because I thought he's going to get a shotgun right now. <laughs> so he was staying. He was staying in this house in the Hollywood Hills that looked like it had been abandoned. I mean, it was just disgusting inside. And he had this. He was living with this woman who was prostituting for him down on Sunset Boulevard. She would go down there, turn tricks, so that they could get money. To, to get do math, drugs. To get math, which and, is dangerous And there drug. were times when we were up there, because it was like this whole thing where he would say that he wanted to do it, and he was going to come in, and then we'd go up there to get him, and suddenly he would freak out. And as Bob said, like, there were times when... And he would get, like, very... I thought he was going to do something ex- crazy. Excited. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, it was. <laughs> what were you thinking when he went back in the house? Remember being on the balcony? Yeah, I remember. I was like, I'm jumping right over there. I don't care if I break my ankle. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was crazy. But, but that's, but, that's but, the fun of being around addicts. But, no. but then, but then you, get, you get to this place where it's like you, you know, you, you're determined. Do you know what I mean? And there's, it was like I felt the same way about uh, the guy from Guns and. Uh, yeah, Stephen Adler. Yeah, Stephen Adler. Like there were people who you could tell they desperately wanted to to do it but then they were just fighting so hard and you know and it and you just i don't know you just get determined to make it happen you know because you know that on the flip side there's so much good to come out of it you know well and john i mean your background is in comedy specials right i look around your office here and it's this really bizarre mixture of somebody rehab you know therapy type shows with daniel tosh and you know dl hewley and and all these comedians did I mean? Did you get worried? First of all, how were you able to straddle both worlds? Because they well, here's the thing. So, so I host. did. I mean, I did a ton of therapy as a kid, like, and just. I mean, I still do tons of therapy. So. At a time when it was probably much more taboo. Uh, yeah, I definitely would not tell people I did therapy twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was. I want to go on a date. I do a lot of therapy. I've been doing therapy since I was like in my twenties, and that's and consistently. I mean, to me, it's like brushing my teeth. You know, it's like, and I think that's true for everybody. I think that like, I mean, we did couples therapy, and I believe it is the key in a in a world not to get off topic, but in a world where like divorce rate is headed to north of fifty percent. I think couples therapy is the only way you can make it work, but that's that's a different thing. Um, I I mean, here's the thing: it's like I think that 
you know, the, the two kind of coexist together because most comedians I know are the most miserable people. They the are some of the most troubled yeah, people of course. I've ever I mean, known. I mean, that's why they're up there, you know, trying to make people, you know. So, uh, I don't know. I think the but two... But what made you come out from New York to want to do this? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I, I came out from New York because I basically started my own company and L.A. was sort of where you had to be back then... In two thousand, in the early two thousands, but why a, didn't you just go sitcom? That's there was a much, I always wondered. Well, there was a much smaller presence of television in New York, and reality was just exploding. You know, so we started trying to just come up with different ideas in the reality space. And but I'm interested in your journey because, because to me, I've I'm born and raised in this town. I know everything, and I've watched it well, happen. But I, but I it was made too. sense that John would come out here and just go to comedy store, find a good young comedian and then put some goofy 30 minutes calm together. I didn't, I just didn't but, understand but why you didn't do that. Here's what you because, had no intention of doing this that. Is a glutton for punishment. Because, because at that time, sitcoms were actually, I mean, just from a business standpoint, <laughs> sitcoms were not doing well. Every, I mean, reality was trumping everything. I always felt like there was a way to inject comedy into reality with, with a lot of this stuff. And look, going into celebrity rehab, we certainly weren't at the onset looking at, hey, let's figure out how to put comedy into this thing. I remember watching the first cuts of it, and I was like, this is badass. Yeah, it, You're it, letting the us be us. It had to you have. You know what I mean? It, it had to have let, because the other thing, too, is I think that VH1 had just shot something, or either, when we went and pitched it to VH1, to you guys, right? You guys had just shot something in Malibu, or MTV had just shot something in Malibu. A rehab Be- show? A rehab show. I-, I believe it was rehab without celebrities. Correct. Yeah. Because yeah. it was really? so dark. And, and, and I was I always scratched my head and said, God, I can't believe Jeff wants to move forward. Because like, normally when a buyer has just had a bad experience, like, they're not going to go within a, a million feet. You know? So you know, we definitely were of the mind that we had. Because look, at, this, at the end of the day, like, we can go do this amazing show. But if nobody watches it, who cares, right? Know. Yeah, you know. So the other thing I'm going to say, without question, is that having now done a fair amount of shows, like with all of these things, you need the stars to line up to a certain extent. Do you know what I mean? And so there's always an element of luck involved in everyone. Every hit show, had, like the cast of Friends, they got lucky. You know what I mean? Like they went into it with uh, Courtney Cox was the star. And then they just cast all these people under it, and it turned out that, like, the chemistry, et cetera. I think, not to compare us to friends, but I think we had a bit of the same, you know, luck with our show, which is Drew and you and Shelly and... And your network executive? No, Pollock. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and truthfully, like, I think if we had It had... is true. Let's talk about Noah for a second. First time I met him, I was like, oh, this guy's cool, because I expected some swarmy TV people, and you're not that. Thank you. So no, and, that made and you, me feel and, safe. I'm and, telling and you. And here's the thing. You guys. A couple years into it, I didn't feel I, safe. Thank you. I got a little slick. <laughs> no, but, but, but you, guys, you guys let the show be do the its show. thing. You guys weren't in there trying to like rule with a heavy hand. Because that's a show you can't have a heavy hand. Like There was no other way to do it but to just let it run its course. And, and I also think like if we hadn't have had Jeff Conway, and if we hadn't have had some of the casting Seth Binzer from the first season... Could have been, could have easily been a flop. Do you know what I mean? So, the stars did line yeah, up. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, and then we had old, old other seasons where you had Gary Busey, who, you know, we came have in. Our ambassador wait, to North Korea wait, was on Gary, the show. But, wait, but, but 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 a highlight for me was Gary Busey coming in, thinking 
that he was going to be standing side by side with Dr. Drew wearing a lab coat, helping everybody, <laughs> even though we had had multiple conversations <laughs> with him leading up to it, even a meeting right before where it was like, Gary, you know, you're coming as a patient. Does that, somehow that all kind of slipped his brain. <laughs> and, and then there was that, there, you know, he had that awakening, which obviously made for a great first episode. But then also just like Gary, and I think this was like an interesting thing, though, for people at home where Gary felt like it was okay. You know, even though he smoked pot every day and drank every day, he's not an addict. You know, and I and I think that that spoke to and not just Gary, but we had that with other people. But like it spoke to this awakening for people across this country that like, you know, you don't have to be like a heroin addict to be an addict. Like if yeah. you're drinking every night. If you're self-medicating yourself in any way, you have a problem that, yeah. that, that needs to be addressed, you know? So, Well, and sorry, I mean, it was nice what you said about me a second ago, but let me go back now, since I also have to fill the role of network executive for this episode. I, you know, you, you guys came in with the tape. The idea was fantastic. And we had all those concerns you mentioned, you know, can you book it? Can you cast it? Is it going to be too depressing? You know, this, that, the other. And so you sort of Trojan horse this very important, you know, important topic of treatment. And the Trojan horse here were the celebrities. So the thought was, if we can entice the viewers to come in, you know, these surreal life fans to come in and watch a show about lots of celebrities, they know, but then they're actually going to get a bunch of medicine as well. They just don't realize it. And that was always sort of the model there, you know, and John comes in and clearly a great producer but had worked for Lorne Michaels and Broadway Video, and I think we're all scratching our heads a bit. You know, why Why is this comedy guy, you know, This why? is going to be funny. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> how is this, you know, how is this going to work? But the package was undeniable. Drew, obviously very well known, brought a lot of cover, and we just said, fuck it, let's try, right? Let's give John a little bit of money and very see what tiny, he can deliver. Tiny amount of money. And I do stress little. Yeah. That and trickled so, down to everyone, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> So John turns in this tape that was that we talked about earlier, and it was undeniable. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that room, and there was no way that the show wasn't going forward. But then, to John's credit, we were still very nervous. You know, we go, who is this comedy guy? How is this comedy guy that none of us have ever worked with going to pull this off? And John stuck to his guns. And, you know, we tried to partner him, and we tried to do all those things, and John just said, no, I got this. I got this. And what, you know, five seasons in, multiple spinoffs. I mean, a whole genre created. John did have it. And so, you know, I share that for any producers or executives that are listening. That you know, think about this. Since the show, I've pitched some shows, right? With you, too, right? And I always say it's going to be funny. And the people you're pitching to are like, the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm not able to describe it, but you understand it. Right, we yes. we were working on a show a couple months ago. It's going to have a human kind of lightness to it that they can't see when you're pitching an idea about the opioid epidemic and kids are dying at an unbelievable rate. And and celebrity rehab delivered that human twinkle in your eye. This these people are lovable that you can't see from a raw pitch, right? Well, no, I mean you're absolutely right, and I think I'd love to hear you your guys' thoughts on. You know, the networks and the process, um, because it's just become so compartmentalized and 
you know, oh, this producer only does this, or we only do this kind of show, and this notion that you know, you know, you complimented Jeff earlier and said that he would take a flyer on a show that one of the other networks failed on. I mean, 10 years later today, not, not a chance. It would never happen. Not a chance. You know, so the system well, nobody is... Nobody watches television. That's a bad problem. <laughs> sure, but even if you were going to go to one of those streaming platforms, it just... No, I'm telling you, Netflix has a problem. The, the problem is, are people watching this, this content that people are producing? Right, that's been a constant butt up against head head headbutting. Right, here's an interesting thing. I did a pitch at Nat Geo about two years ago. They said if you can get a celebrity attached to this, a celebrity executive producer, I'll we'll, we'd love to meet with you again. So I call Chris Rock, as a friend of mine. I go, Chris, will you help me with the show? Will you executive produce it? He said, Yeah. Then we come out here and and nobody, even if you got Chris Rock producing it. Everybody's so hesitant about everything. What was happening two years ago at Nat Geo, they said, get a celebrity attached. Doesn't matter anymore because a lot of celebrities have been attached as EPs and it doesn't get a show, people to watch a show. There's something about you knew, John Irwin knew, if we can get people to watch, the, the thing will take on a life of its own. I didn't know that. It was interesting, though, because I remember... When we finished the first episode, so I mean, the first episode was amazing, right? It was. It like, was the best first cut I've ever seen of it. Was, it was Seth is smoking crack in was, the limo. Yeah, and, it, and it, <laughs> it was amazing just because you were seeing things that you'd never seen. It was like unbelievably crazy. Um, and then I remember, but but then I remember we got that Thursday time slot that was like a a no that was like a no a no slot. Yeah, I, in my mind, the network had gotten cold feet on the show, and we're like, "This is we got to fucking just bury this thing." Thursday nights, was it? Oh yeah, with no lead-in. Like so, so what was the deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the business of television. I don't remember abandonment so much as just we we collectively people programming the network didn't know what didn't know to where to do put with it. it, right? You know, where you know what the lead-in is that's going to help what, the show. What hit shows no, did you have no. then? Because were, were the other EPs say, I don't want that show next to mine? Well, no, ah! no, no, no. They, they don't get to do that. But but the way it worked, what he's saying is like, you know, advertisers and, you know, you're, you're basically, you want to, so, so if you have the Surreal Life on, right, which gets a huge number for them or did at the time, you then want to put a show on that's going to keep that like keep that audience and yeah. i think that they looked at this show it has and no like, connectivity this show does not fit into anything that vh1 currently does so and there was a you know there certainly was a dialogue of oh vh1 you're gonna put the celebrities on surreal life and watch them get drunk and then you're gonna put them on rehab and watch them get sober and and that was unfair and didn't seem like you should really smush those two things together. You know, let them exist as their own and and as their own sort of entities. It definitely felt like we were getting buried. And then I remember as stories started coming out. So once people found out, once there was an announcement made about the show, like we got a lot of bad press. You know, this was before anybody had seen it, just on the auspices of kind of what Mike Darnell's boss had said, which is celebrity rehab, this is basically... Now VH1 is taking reality to a new low. You know what I mean? This is going to be the ultimate, ultimate shit show. And so I think VH1 was reeling a little bit from that. 
And then the recovery industry was writing letters against Drew too. Yeah, and and but then, that's what got us in the New York <clears throat> Times. I remember there was a lot of negative press. Betty Ford sent a release, a press release, attacking us and called, before they'd ever even seen it, yeah, right? Yeah, and that Everybody then did. got picked up by news agencies like Mora- uh, the Ethics of Treatment and the Ethics of Medical Profession, which I remember was in the New York Times. And I thought, shit, you can't buy. Uh, writing about the, a reality TV show nobody's ever heard of in the New York Times. There was a picture of me and Drew in the New York Times talking about it. I was like, well, at least people know that there's a TV show. Well, and then <laughs> and then a week before the show premiered, the Drudge Report got a clip somehow of uh, either Shifty or or Jeff Conway doing drugs, and that got insane amount of pickup. So I mean. I think that in a strange more, way, more stars aligning. we got a huge amount of press because obviously for all the obvious reasons, VH1 was doing no promotion. I mean, they were sort of like, didn't know what to do with it. But the show, just because of the nature of it and, and the But think the about it. We're trying like to help other executive producers figure out the magical formula. Nowadays, like you said about networks being so, so compartmentalized, Networks don't want to be associated with anything that's controversial. Controversy is what got Celebrity Rehab on the map. Sure, it certainly got it noticed. And ultimately, because the show had such a pure thesis statement, I think it was able to reject a lot of that negative stuff. But sorry to use this metaphor again, but the Trojan horse here was the craziness, right? And you're absolutely right. I believe uh, Rolling Stone, there was all kinds of press. Mostly negative. And see, yes. nowadays, if something's going to get negative press, they won't even greenlight it, right? Well, but the show was already greenlit. So, so that was the situation. But like, I mean, nowadays, if there was a suspicion, did Jeff Hold, did you guys think, oh, you know, what is I don't the recovery industry going to think press. of it? No, I think we just wanted to make sure that our boxes were checked and that certainly everyone was going to be safe and, you know, and that you just let the chips fall where they may as far as but that's, the that chips respond. fall where they may. Do you think that exists in television these days? Probably not. That's what I'm trying to get. <laughs> yeah. At. Or, or not to the degree. I mean, John, I don't know. What's your experience here these days when you go out, you know, I'm very, very fortunate to call you a very close friend and, you know, relationships are not always like this, you know, yeah, they're yeah. not always this strong. Tight, I mean, right. you know, what are your experiences like these days? And, and by the way, I didn't even know you before the show. You know, this is built in the last decade. So what are your experiences like? You know, I'm sure some are good. I'm sure some are not good, you know, with executives. And and, and are they able to still take chances? Here's the thing. Are there some controversial things that you want to do that you just don't even go down that road? Well, I don't know if controversy is the right thing. Because, I mean, look, I don't think that any of us, at least I didn't, I don't think VH1 did, thought there was going to be a, a negative backlash coming out, like going into slavery rehab. Do you know what I mean? It, it, to the extent that it was prior to the show airing, right? Because, you know. And but then, you said they thought it was hitting an all-time low. That, w- that murmur was in the, in but, the air. But, but, it, but it, was, it was in the air only after VH1 had agreed to do the show. We had shot it, and then they announced it. And then that's when everybody jumped on board and was like, holy, like this is the, you know, because VH1 announced the cast, Right. Announced the show and and you know TM everybody got on the bandwagon of this is this is you know the bottom of the bottom, but then they saw the show because they think in fairness I mean I would have thought the same thing like you're watching all of these reality shows that are trashy and are ridiculous, all but doing well, and then you hear the the logline of this show you hear who's in it and you're expecting it to be a train wreck, yeah right I mean 
I think, but then people tuned into it and they saw that it, it was legitimate and all for the right reason and it completely pivoted everybody. You know what I mean? Suddenly, everybody was hailing this show as being this, you know, life-saving phenomenon, you know? So, yeah. I mean, that's that. But I think getting back to your question about where things are at now, I don't know. I think, I think I mean, I, I kind of love where we're at right now in the, in the business, strangely enough, because I feel like there's a lot of, a lot more really interesting places to pitch to. And, um, but I also feel everybody's pain to a certain extent, which is, I think, you know, everybody's, everybody's afraid to do stuff because nothing's, you know, a lot of stuff isn't working, working right now. You know what I mean? It's so it's, I mean, we're in a crazy time in television. I mean, look, I'm stating the obvious, but it's like, I don't know. I mean, right now I'd say we're in the age of, of what was old is new again. Isn't that a reaction to nobody's watching new shows? Though? Well, it, it, it's it's a reaction to I think a desperation to find stuff that works. So so like you know I I I feel for the buyers to a certain extent because nothing you know they're buying stuff and it's not working. So of course everybody's gonna you know you can't I don't think we're in a place right now with budgets being so tight like we were back in the. In, in the days of VH of of slavery, yeah, where it was, where it was like Jeff Jeff Old and you guys could say, you know what, let's take a chance, let's see what happens. If it doesn't work, I got enough hit shows on the air that I can wipe this one off as a oh, whatever. I think it's the exact opposite. Now we're in a time where most of these channels, most of their slate doesn't work. They're pr- they're praying to have a good show, so of course they can't. You know, of course it makes it just that much more difficult to take chances, you know? So we're in the wrong business. Is, is that what you're saying? I, well, no. I mean, like I said, I, I actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm having fun for some crazy reason. Uh, I would say there are definitely businesses that are easier where you can make a shit pile more money. But that said, Rehab. I don't know how to Rehab. do Rehab, I told you. I, the, problem <laughs> I have, the problem I have is I don't know how to do anything else. So I'll, I'll be screwed. You know what I mean? Like, I, love I don't have a choice. I still watch a lot of it. I'm, I love it. You know that. I, I just thought, you know, if you can bring some part of the world that most people don't know about into their living rooms, they'll want it, yeah. they'll want to see it, right? The, the problem is, and I believe this, that there's so much hesitance and so much worry right now, last two years, that, you know, bring, uh, bringing things into the world it's either seen as too dark or too light you can't make fun of it it's it's a strange time because i'm still in that space right right? i've been trying to get people to pay attention to the opioid crisis for five years two years ago i started going around you know trying to get to show these people's lives they're right here in america people don't even know about it frightening well and the other thing it's it's the other thing you talked about, which is our collective lack of empathy, and and I don't know how you fix that. You know that maybe we'll have to save uh, for the next the next conversation. Um, so you know you guys treated or we all treated. I counted close to fifty celebrities on all the various shows, and and I think we helped thousands. And, you know, as you alluded to, so you know, mission accomplished. How about the fact that I I run a rehab center, and my two competitors are Jason Waller, who was on Celebrity Rehab. Oh, really. <laughs> Yeah, and Mackenzie Phillips runs Breathe. Those are my competitors now. What a how great of a thing is that? So there it is, the full story of Celebrity Rehab. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. 
You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thanks as well to our guests, John Irwin and Bob Forrest, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EPWithNP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind.